0: Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills Podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, I I love a good story— uh, I love every story format. I love sitting around and telling stories. I love going to movies. I love books. And what separates a good story from a great story is the climax of the story, the payoff of the story. And when you get to the climax or the payoff of a story, it can really set the tone. It can take a really good movie and make it terrible, or it can take a decent movie and make it great. Because what happens in that moment is you pull everything together. The story comes together, all the characters begin to, um, you begin to see how their arc played out from the beginning to the end, and it can be really effective when you do this, but sometimes when you're watching a movie or you're reading a book, you can get to the end of that book and it just ruins everything. Um, Maybe they just go on for a little bit too long. You know, you get to this part of the story, it's like if you had just wrapped it up like 50 pages early this would have been a great book. Uh, and sometimes the ending can ruin or overshadow everything else. It's like Star Wars. If you watch Star Wars episode six, which is really the third movie, I know it's confusing. Everything ends so well, right? Luke finally overcomes the emperor. There's, there's you know re- uh, redemption for Darth Vader. And then somebody decided to go for a money grab and make three more Star Wars movies, which completely ruined the rest of the story. Just retcon everything else. I'm a little bitter about it. Um, and if you look at Abraham's story at the end of chapter 21, it feels like that's where it should end, right? It feels like the story should be this happy ending where Abraham's waited, and he struggled, and he's he strived, and he finally believes God, and he finally receives what he's waited for, for, for all these years, and that should be the end. You know, you know credits, scene ended, everything is just all, all good. Everybody rides off into the sunset, and so the reason we think that is that's how we would write the story. That's what we want our lives to look like. We want our lives to be where we do the right things, we, we get the reward, and we just tie a nice little bow on it at the end. And so you get to Genesis chapter 22, and you look at Abraham's story, and it seems a little odd, and I swear I did not pick this uh, for Child Dedication Sunday. Um, this would be an odd sermon for this, um, It seems like, wait a minute, why is the story continuing? God wants to do what? He just gave Abraham this kid, and now he wants Abraham to kill this kid? Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, actually said this is one of the reasons he can't believe the Bible. He says, Genesis 22 to him is so incredulous. It seems like child abuse. It seems cruel. How could you ever believe that a God could be good if he's asking his Servant to kill his own son. And maybe you find yourself this morning looking at some of the circumstances in your own life and you're questioning the goodness of God. How could God be good? How could God be real if all of these things are happening when the Bible says he promises good for me? But you have to see how Genesis 22 fits into Abraham's story. You have to see how Genesis 22 fits into the story and what it's trying to communicate to us because there's one core question that has been at the center of Abraham's life the entire book of Genesis, and it's this. Abraham, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you believe me at my word? And as we've seen Abraham again and again, he's not done real well with this. He's batting about 500. He is not, he's 50 50. Some chapters he's crushing it. The next chapter he, he's going off into some craziness. Here his faith is being tested. This is the moment. This is the ultimate test of whether he would trust God. And God is again saying, Abraham, will you trust me? And the, the, the lining behind this question, what's really behind the question of Abraham is not really Abraham's ability to believe, but this question, is God a God worth trusting? Our God is a God who is worth giving our trust and our belief and our faith, and that is revealed to us in Jesus. And when you see that as the point of the story of not just Genesis 22, but the entire Bible, this story begins to make sense. Lynn Scribner says that if we attempt to read the Bible primarily as a rule book, in other words, as a means to, I do this and then God gives me this, it crumbles between our fingers. With such a mindset, Genesis 22 is a scandal and a barrier to faith. Yet, when Scripture is read as intended, we see it as a testimony to Christ. Not a testimony to our ability to believe, but a testimony to God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. Will Abraham trust God? And the question for you this morning is, do you believe that God is trustworthy? Will you trust God? This is the crucible of faith that when it's hard, when it's hopeless, when it's impossible, will you trust that God is worth trusting? Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it seems illogical, even when you don't understand, even when you don't get what you think you want, will you trust God? And so faith reveals this, and faith reveals four ideas that we're going to unpack today. First of all, faith reveals what God is like. Faith reveals to us what God is like. And the first thing we see about what God is like is that God is good. God is good, but yet if you look at verses 22, or sorry, chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, it makes us wonder. It says, After these things, after chapter 21, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said to him, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. I want you to take. The son that I finally gave you, the son who's your only son after you obeyed me and you sent Ishmael into the wilderness. After I mean, don't you take the son whom you love more than anything else and I want you to sacrifice him? And then you look at this and you think, What kind of God is this? And that's the question that Genesis 22 is trying to get you to ask What kind of God is this? Now, the command would not be all that unfamiliar. It's just that God of Israel giving this command would be unfamiliar. The Canaanite gods, all the false gods of the peoples around Abraham, this would have been a very normal request to show how much you loved God. You were to take your children and sacrifice them to that God. This would not have been an uncommon request. It would just have been uncommon for the God that he had come to know and love to ask this request because the gods of the people around him were fickle and angry and wrathful and vindictive. But yet Abraham had seen again and again and again that God was loving and patient and kind and faithful and forgiving. Now to relieve the tension this morning... God is not asking Abraham to kill his child. He's not asking him to murder his child. He's not asking him to prove himself. So you can take a big exhale. This would be at odds with the Bible. If you go all the way back to Genesis 5 and 6, one of the uh, the indictments that God had against the early people in creation was that they were murderers, that they were taking life unnecessarily. We see later in the law that to kill another person made in the image of God was an abomination and so what's being asked here is not murder, but a burnt offering. And we need to understand the context and understand the difference. A burnt offering in this time was often taken by taking the firstborn animal or the first fruits of, of, of a herd, and they were to take that animal and sacrifice in order to pay for or atone sin. And what God is doing here is he's saying, I want you to take your firstborn, which the significance of this is important. The way things worked in the ancient world was that your firstborn all the inheritance went through that child. Now, how many of you come from a family where you are more than, there's more than one of you? You're not the only child. Anybody else? Okay, okay. You, your parents, when you say, who's your favorite child? What do they always say? Oh, I love you all equally, right? Abraham would not have said that. He'd be like, no, my oldest is my favorite. Every parent would have said that. The oldest was always the favorite because the inheritance went through the oldest child. And that oldest child was then to distribute the inheritance to the rest of the family. This was Abraham's only child. This was the child that Abraham cherished the most. And what God is asking him in this moment where he's putting this before him, where he's testing his faith, is he's saying, Abraham, do you believe that I am who I say I am? Do you believe that I'm good? Do you believe that I'm going to come through on this? And do you love me more than you even love your son?" the promised son who I've given you, do you really think that I'm going to take him away? This is a call to obedience for he's asking Abraham, will you obey even when things seem a little off? Even when they're hard, even when you don't completely understand them. And he's asking Abraham to weigh human wisdom and affection for his family and what he wanted most against whether he trusted that God is who he says he is. When you're faced with the the choice between obedience, and understanding, which one do you choose? When God's Word clearly calls you to do something or live a certain way, do you believe that God is good and wants good for you enough to say, I may not get it, I may not understand it, I might might not even like it, but I trust Him enough to obey? Would you be willing to give up what you hold dearest, believing that God has good for you? There's something else here we see that this shows us what God is like. Faith shows us that God sees the future. Now, we're in a position that Abraham is not, right? We get to see the end of the chapter, and we can exhale, and we can go, okay, I know he's not actually going to kill his kid. But Abraham's not in that position. We see the outcome that Abraham doesn't see. And so for Abraham, this is a real test of faith. And the question here is, will he trust that God is good, and will he trust that God knows the outcome that he is being asked to believe by faith? Even when he can't see it. Believing that God already does. Would he be willing to sacrifice his son believing that God knows what's next because he's already worked all of these things out for his good because to God there is no future. To God, there, there is no unknown. He is ever-present above time and space, meaning that there, God has never been surprised. God has never been caught off guard. God has never had to go to plan B. Everything that he has ordered happens according to his will, and this should give us great comfort, and this is why we can have faith. Alistair Begg says that faith is treating the future as if it were present and the unseen as if it were seen? Do you trust that God knows and designed your future enough to obey Him? That the seeming cost that He's asking you to count right now, that seems like it's just too much, is worth it? That whatever seems so hard, He will actually see you through? We also see what God is like in the fact that he keeps his promises. Pastor Matt talked about that last week, that God is faithful to his promises. And if you've been with us through the book of Genesis, you've seen God over and over and over again remind Abraham, I'm going to keep my promise. He said this in chapter 12, 15, 16, 17, chapter 21, I'm going to keep my promise. And at the end of this story, in verses 15 through 18, again, he says, I've kept my promise. Why do you think he has to keep telling him that he's going to keep his promise? Because Abraham forgets that he's going to keep his promise this time. Yeah, God, I I know that you you did that in the past, but this is today. Are, Are you going to show up again? And this is the same thing that happens throughout the Bible. If you look into the book of Exodus, as God's people are with Moses standing before the Red Sea, and they're looking at the Red Sea, and they're like, I don't know, that water looks cold and deep, and I can't swim how are we going to get out of this? Yeah, I, we got the, the Egyptian army bearing down on us, and I don't know about you, but I can't outrun a chariot. It's like the old idea of, you know, I don't need to be able to outrun the bear. I was going to kick my friend in the leg and outrun him. It feels a little bit like that. Like, God, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. God, God I know that you were faithful to Abraham four or five hundred years ago, but are you going to be faithful to me today? the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It means that if he's come through in the past, he's going to come through again. He'll come through for you. We see what God is like in that God loves Abraham enough to test his faith. Him testing his faith is an act of love. And he stretches him because he wants to give him faith that actually works, faith that actually stands the test of time, faith in something that is so much greater than anything else he could hope in. I am so thankful for product testing. Everything we have in this room and in our lives has been tested by somebody or something. I'm so glad that someone tested the brakes on my car so that when I push the brakes, they work. I'm so glad that someone tested all the food that we eat so that we don't get food poisoning. I'm so glad that someone, maybe not here, this building's really old, but I'm so glad somebody tested the, the, the electricity, the, the wiring in the walls. I'm so glad someone tested that to make sure that it is for our good. And what God is lovingly doing to Abraham is he is testing his faith in such a way to show him that Isaac will never be enough for you. The land that I've given you will will never be enough. All the possessions I've given you, they're going to rot and they're going to fade away. And if your hope lies in anything other than me, it will fail you. God loves you enough to stretch your faith. He loves you enough to test your faith. He loves you enough to bring you to the brink where you're like, I have nowhere else to turn but to you, and that is for your good. God loves you enough to tell you no when you pray. And there are some prayers that I don't understand why God says no, but I know ultimately if I believe his word, that he's working that out for my good and the good of others and his glory. The testing of your faith shows that God is good. It demonstrates that he knows your future and that he keeps his promises and that when he stretches your faith, it isn't wasted. But secondly, faith reveals what God requires. This is the actual content of your faith that God, I love you and trust you enough to obey you at your word. I love you and trust you, believing who you've revealed yourself to be, that you will come through. Philippians 2 tells us, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." God is working this out in us and causing us to have actual faith. And so, obedience to God is where the rubber of your faith meets the road. It's where things begin to get real, and you actually get to demonstrate what you believe by what you do. We got to spend some time in London over the last week and a half and got to see Matt and Sue, who are a part of our congregation. If you haven't met them, so excited for you to meet them. They'll be back in like a little over a month. Uh, And we got to spend some time with them. one thing I was very impressed with was London's train system. If you look at the map, it's crazy. There's a train to go everywhere. And, and I was watching and I'm like, you know, the, there's no orange line that's on fire here. Uh, everything seems to work. Uh, and so I was like, you know, the way that I demonstrate I believe this train will work would be to get on the train. And the way that I demonstrate that I believe that the bus is actually going to come in one or two minutes, even though I keep checking my watch, is waiting there for the bus to come. In the same way, we are called to demonstrate what we believe through obedience. And Abraham's faith is about to get tested like never before. And he's being asked to obey God at his word. This is what God requires. And he does so in gut-wrenching fashion. Because again, if you look at verse 2, he says, Take your son. And one commentator said this is like a knife was stuck in Abraham's chest. And with every word, someone twisted the knife. I want you to take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I want you to obey me. Take your only son, take the boy that you've been waiting for for three decades, and I want you to sacrifice him for me. And to his credit, Abraham does obey. This is in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddling his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac he got up early. If that had been me, i mean, like, I'm turning off the alarm. I'm hitting the snooze button. I'm throwing the covers over my head. I'm calling in sick. I'm doing whatever I can to get out of this situation. Notice that he doesn't fill in Sarah, because I'm sure the mama would have said, not happening. And he goes with his servants, and we see that some time has likely passed. If you look at the beginning of verse 1, after these things, so after what happened in chapter 21, they go on this journey. And as you look, you kind of see how much time maybe has passed, because As he cuts the wood, we see in verse six um, that uh, he took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, on Isaac, his son, meaning that his son would have been old enough to carry a bundle of wood on his back on a on a three day journey and go up, then go up a mountain. So he takes the wood, and we so so Isaac's probably an adolescent. He's had twelve or thirteen years to watch this boy grow up with the hope that he's going to grow into a man who becomes a father. And you see truly that this is about faith because at the end of verse 2, he says, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now that might sound familiar because if you look at Genesis chapter 12, what did God tell him? I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave what's known. I want you to leave what you understand and go to the place that I tell you. I want you to believe me again. We see the faith as he goes on this three-day journey. Then I'm sure along the way he wanted to change his mind. I'm sure along the way he's wrestling with this and he's doubting and he's saying, I- I'm not sure what I should do. Did I make a mistake? Should I just go back? I don't even know where I'm going. But he still keeps moving forward by faith. They finally arrive at the mountain. It says in verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you, believing that God is going to provide. And then the story sort of goes into slow motion. The story just bogs down. It's like every step is laid out in just painstaking detail. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And then Isaac says just something absolutely heartbreaking. He says, My father. He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham knows in his head what Isaac does not know. He tenderly says, My father, Daddy, like a child would, where's where's the lamb? And Abraham says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Believing, again, that God would provide. God is going to provide. And in this moment, Abraham had to answer two questions. And these are the two questions of faith. What do I love and trust most? And do I believe God can do anything? Every one of us has to answer those two questions. What do I love above everything else? Everyone puts their hope, their dreams, their self-image, their joy, their satisfaction in something. And maybe this morning, you're not a Christ follower. Maybe this morning, you don't consider yourself a religious person. You still do the same thing because you care about what other people think about you. You care how well you do at your job. You care about the image that other people see. You want to be seen as successful. You care about the right causes or how much money you make or the power you can exert or the importance that you have. There's something that every single one of us puts our hope and our love and our trust in, and you have faith in what you obey and what you love and trust most. For Abraham, he could have said, no, God, I'm good. You gave me what you said you would give me. I I have what you promised me. And this morning you may be saying, God, I can't give this up. I I can't live without that if that's what it means to follow you. And whatever is non-negotiable in your life is where your faith actually lies. What is the non-negotiable in your life? What do you love and trust more than anything else? For Abraham, he was willing to obey God even if it cost him Everything. Secondly, do I believe that God can do anything? God has already answered this question. Is there anything that's impossible for God? Abraham believes that God will make a way. And in fact, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, he actually describes the faith of Abraham and is credited to him as righteousness that even though he believed God was going to intervene, he actually believed that if somehow God had allowed him to go through with this, and kill his son, that God could raise him from the dead. Stephanie Quick says that Abraham's confidence was that the voice that called him to Canaan was likewise the Lord of the resurrection. For Abraham, this meant and changed everything. Do you believe that Jesus is enough, even if you have to give something up? That God can do anything if you have to deny yourself, if you never reach the dream that you hope for? What are you willing to believe God for? What are you willing to believe God for personally that God can help you overcome your past or your trauma or help you receive a breakthrough that you've been hoping for? What, what could God do for our church? Church, sometimes I think we pray too small. I think we pray for what's just attainable enough for us. Then we say, okay, God, we need just a little help to get up over the hurdle, but let me explain something. For God to build his church takes the power of God to do it. We can't change a single person's heart. We can't convince anybody to come to church unless God works in them. We can't convince anybody to trust Jesus unless the Spirit makes their dead heart alive to believe. We can't see revival happen in our city because of good music or great systems or, or great preaching. We need the Spirit of God to move. Do we believe that God can do the impossible? Everything you face is possible by faith because God provides. Faith reveals what God provides to make the impossible Possible Verse 9, we see Abraham is ready to go through with this. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son. I'm not sure how he got a 12-year-old to sit still for this. And he laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. That Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He's ready to go through with this. And then God shows up and shows Abraham that his faith in him was Right? Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. In other words, I wasn't going to let anything happen to him. I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He says, I know. I know you believe me. And the reason that God can do this is because he provided a substitute. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 14. So Abraham called the name of of this place, the Lord will provide. Now here's where it starts to get curious. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now what's fascinating about this is that this is the same location that the temple mount would be put one day. The same location that year after year after year, animals would be brought to the temple to be a substitute for people's sins. What's happening in that moment when their sins are being paid for is God is coming to collect. God is saying, your sins need a substitute. Your sins need someone in your place. And it's on the same place where another father, years later, would load a wooden beam on his son's back. And that son would walk up the hill of Calvary, and the father would not spare his son. So that his son could be a substitute for you. And I can't capture the beauty of this any better than Jackie Hill Perry did, so I'm going to read what she said about this. On the cross, God got blood on his hands. God became man so he could die to maintain a covenant relationship with his people. There he was, God in the flesh, being killed like an animal, becoming a lamb that he promised to be. There was no lamb at this time, no voice to cry out from heaven to stop it. Only silence in those three hours in the dreadful darkness of God's presence was the only begotten son whose own father was pleased to crush him. Jesus became sin so you could be declared righteous. Jesus died so that you could have life. Jesus was bruised so you could be healed. Jesus rose from the dead so you could too. This is the beauty of substitution. And what this means is that there's nothing too great that you could ever give that God has not given up for you. That to follow Jesus, whatever it costs you, is worth it because God gave up what was most precious to him for you by giving his son, Jesus, to die in your place. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus is the key to satisfying our souls. Jesus is the key to joy that will never fade. Jesus is the key to everlasting life. And this can only be had through Jesus, which means that no matter how hard or how hopeless you can trust, you can trust God. Have Have you trusted God by giving your life to Jesus? Real quickly, lastly, faith reveals what God wants us to tell. We see in verse 19 that Abraham goes and settles back in Beersheba. And he he goes and he begins to tell of what God is. And I can imagine him coming down the mountain and saying to the servants, "You You have no idea what God just did. I imagine him going home to Sarah, apologizing, and then saying, You will not believe what God has done. I can imagine him sitting one day with his grandchildren, telling, Let me tell you what God did for your dad. This is your story here is what God has done for me. When we share the gospel with other people, here's what we're saying. We're not telling them some abstract story. We're telling them our story. We're telling them at one point we were dead, but now we've been made alive. We're telling them at one point we were now orphans, but now we have a family. We're telling them at one point we were enemies of God, but yet in his love, he demonstrated it by giving us his son as a substitute. This is our story, so who will you tell? Two practical steps that I want to give you as you think about this this Easter season. First of all, it's ask God to bring one person to your mind. If every single one of us made it a practice to just say, I'm going to pick one person in my life. I'm going to share the gospel with them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to seek their good. I'm going to invite them to put their faith in Jesus. If every one of us did that, let's say that once a year we led one person to Jesus, I mean, that, that would radically change our city. What if we were to pick one person? And then secondly, maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you're like, man, I don't really know how to share the gospel. One, we'll help you. But secondly, just invite them to Easter. Just invite that person to Easter. At Easter, people are more likely than any other time to go to church. And the number one way that people find their way to church is a personal invite. I want to challenge you to do that. Believe that God is a God worth trusting and let's tell a story together. Spring.